these things. Write the things that you've seen. What had John seen? He had seen Jesus walking the earth, saw him die, rise again, saw him ascend to heaven. He saw the birth of the church and then the persecution of it. We are told that that corresponds with Revelation 1.1 through Revelation 1.20. Well, what were the things that are? The church age. The church is growing, living, being persecuted, which we are then told lines up with Revelation 1.21 through Revelation chapter 3, verse 22. And then the things which will take place after these things. That is Revelation chapter 4, verse 12 through Revelation 22 through 21, which, which talks about what takes place after the church age, the rapture, the tribulation period, the millennium, the, eter- the eternal state. That is the divine outline for this book. Or at least, so we are told, by those who hold to a theological position that was completely unheard of more than 150 years ago. Those that will hold to this way of thinking, they will unashamedly tell you this book is actually easy to understand. Just follow the divine outline. It's not confusing. But the thing is, verse 19, this divine outline was in place when Luther was alive. The same man who, in 1522, wrote this to the preface of his translation of this book. He said about the book of Revelation of John, I leave everyone free to hold his own opinions. I would not have anyone bound to my opinion or judgment. I say what I feel. I miss more than one thing in this book, and it makes me consider it to be neither apostolic nor prophetic. Verse 19 was in place when Calvin was alive and who never wrote a commentary on this book. And this outline was in place when C.H. Spurgeon was alive as well. And he didn't hold, put forth that that verse is the outline for this book. This was not his understanding of the book of Revelation. So how then did this verse become the outline for the book of Revelation? It has happened because we've allowed our hearts and our minds to become captivated with things other than the Lord. And you're thinking, not me. And praise God if this is true. But most of us, if not all of us, we need to heed the diagnosis of the great high physician. Because most of us have fallen into a very subtle trap. One that Jesus warned us about in Matthew 15, 7-9. He said there, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. I'm going to spend some time today, this morning, showing how this is true in many of our hearts and minds. How many of us, when we talk about the Apostle John, how many of us will confidently say that he was the disciple that Jesus loved, that he was the man that was left to care for Mary, that he was thrown into a vat of boiling oil and escaped from it only to be exiled to the island of Patmos, which is where this book was written from. We believe these things as truth, and most of them are. Since they're found in Scripture, we can point to chapter and verse concerning Mary, about John being called the disciple that Jesus loved, about being exiled to Patmos. But how about that vat of oil thing? Can you point to chapter and verse in the Bible that says that? No? Good. Because it's not scriptural. And what's the big deal, you're thinking? I mean, isn't there extra biblical evidence that says that this is true? And so what if we believe it? What's the big deal? Well, allow me to demonstrate to you the issue that this brings about, 
how holding extra biblical things as truth alongside his scripture is an issue. You see, none of us are amazed that John was exiled to the island of Patmos. That doesn't captivate our imagination. Big deal. Anybody can be exiled. Lots of people have been exiled. But a vat of oil, <laughs> that captivates our imagination. We see that as the hand of God in the life of John. And we have so firmly believed this is truth that we don't even question whether or not it's truth. And? So what's the big deal? Even if it's not. You guys ever hear of an organization called Voice of the Martyrs? I want to read to you in a little excerpt from their website. I pulled this off of their website. It concerns the Apostle John. And again, Voice of the Martyrs. Okay? Here's the title. What do you do with someone who is boiled in oil but doesn't die? It, it is said that the Roman emperor, Roman emperor Domitian commanded that the Apostle John be boiled to death in oil, but John only continued to preach from within the pot. Again, this is actual coming straight off of their website. Voice of the Martyrs. This is a worldwide, supposedly solid Christian organization. One that people read from, quote, they will turn to to find out about Christian martyrs. And you remember that one thing concerning John that we can't find chapter and verse about to substantiate? That thing that we can't find in Scripture? John being thrown into a vat of oil? Now it is not only being propagated as truth, but now it's been enhanced a bit. You see, John doesn't just climb out of the pot. He seemingly doesn't even desire to get out of that hot tub full of vegetable oil. He's actually basking in it, preaching from it. And then added to this is another truth that is believed to be truth. That it was Roman Emperor Domitian who commanded that John get the French fry treatment. And that is an extra-biblical fact that is very important to many in deciphering the book of Revelation. A fact that was not hold or held as truth until the past 70 years. That article goes on. It says, another time, John was forced to drink poison, but as promised in Mark 16, 18, it didn't hurt him. Now, I'm not sure where they got that from. But again, that little factoid it captivates our imagination. And then right after these two extra-biblical things, they follow them up with, Thus John, the head of the church in Ephesus, at that time was banished to Patmos in AD 97. Again, supposition thrown in alongside of truth. We don't know for certain that John was the head of the church at Ephesus or when he was banished. But since we know that he was banished, according to verse 9, this biblical fact is thrown in alongside of those man-made suppositions, and we have doctrines of men being propagated as biblical truth. And then comes the why of all of this, and why it should matter to you, at least according to the author of The Voice of the Martyrs. He says, John survived all of this because God had not finished with him yet. A revelation still had to come while he was in a cave on the island of Patmos. Now, I've read through the book of Revelation. I've never read of a cave. I don't know if I'm just missing it, but there's no cave in the book of Revelation. John received a vision. This vision became the book of Revelation, the book that would act as a driving force for evangelism in the church age. Again, the vision is the book of Revelation. It didn't become it. John didn't use this vision as the backdrop for his book. And where is the proof that Revelation, this book, was a driving force behind evangelism? Where did he get that from? So can you see how these extra-biblical truths are being stacked up alongside a biblical truth in order to further a theological agenda? And the author goes on. 
He says it prophesied the events that surround the return of Christ. John wrote of Christ's second coming and welcome his arrival. Even today, his writings inspire believers to anticipate the glorious return of Christ. And two years after John's exile, the emperor Domitian died, and John returned to the church in Ephesus. Again, where is this found in Scripture? But again, this timeline is very important to a very strong and influential sect within modern Christianity, which is why it's being propagated. The author goes on, The youngest of the disciples lived also to be the oldest, dying at peace at Ephesus at the age of 80, over, after over half a century of resilient service to Christ's church. And then, because of this supposition thrown in with biblical truth, we are finally given application. It's impossible to retire from God's service. Just ask John. At a time when the average age of death was much younger, John lived to be 80 years old, faithfully serving all the while. That's not even historically accurate. Pliny the Younger was martyred at 87 years old. It's not even true. But the application goes on for us. Perhaps you've been struggling with your own usefulness in God's service. Perhaps you feel too old and find yourself thinking God could use someone younger in your place. Or perhaps you're young and single and wonder if a married couple might be more what God has in mind. Instead of letting you quit on your own excuses, God wants to build you into a spiritual resilience that is not easily discouraged. Start asking today for God to reveal your next steps in service to him. That article reads like truth to me. It is written about a true Christian martyr. As truth. Truth that we are to read and then believe and then repeat. And how often have we repeated these things as gospel? We are warned about adding to or subtracting from the Word of God in this very book itself. And yet we've allowed man-made tradition to become gospel truth in our hearts. The facts as stated in the article from the voice of the martyr, they sound like truth. But are they truth? The whole truth and nothing but the truth. Well, if you just overlook the insertion of those dates, like the two years thing, the insertion of the cave, even the chugging poison, is the assertion that John was thrown into a vat of oil, is that a fact, even if he didn't preach from it? Well, within Christian orthodoxy, it is. Within the Christian church, within many of our own minds, this is gospel truth. But why? Well, the accepted fact that John was thrown into a vat of boiling oil comes from the writings of a man named Tertullian from A.D. 200. He wrote, At Rome, the Apostle John, having been immersed in hot oil, suffered no harm at all from it. And then Jerome, in A.D. 397, he refers to Tertullian's account, claiming that it was Nero who ordered John's execution. So where do the scholars come today? Where do they come up with that date of A.D. 97 for the writing of this book? From the writings of another second century church father, Irenaeus, who was then quoted by Eusebius from the late 400s. God's word, here, God's word says in verse 9, that John was banished to Patmos because of the word of God and the witness of Christ. And we've even taken that to mean that John was evangelizing. That's why he was banished. But truthfully, what verse 9 says can also mean that he was banished to Patmos simply because this was the will of God, because of the word of God, and because he was linked to Christ and the witness of Christ. He could have very well been doing nothing other than just being alive when he was banished. But again, we've allowed our minds to be captivated with things that are not necessarily true over those things which are true. 
Nothing is said about being thrown into a vat of oil. Nothing is said about drinking poison. And yet at least one of those things, those extra-biblical things, has become so firmly fixed in our minds and in our hearts as truth that we believe it as much as we do that he was exiled to that island. There's a problem with this. One that we have to confront if we're going to have our minds and our hearts captivated by the one that God placed as a crowning jewel in his diadem. We must stop building our theology from fragments or a random phrase made from a writing of a mere mortal. Believe it or not, who wrote this book and then in our century, when it was written, those two things have been hotly debated. Even though the author clearly states that his name is John in verse 4. But many historians claim that the Apostle John didn't write this book. And the reason is because the phrases that were used in this book, the manner in which the Greek was written, they say that none of the other writings of John were written in this manner. John had a much better handle on the Greek language than the imperfect manner in which this letter was written. But they failed to take into account that John was writing a completely different sort of letter than all the others he had written. One that was stuffed, stuffed with illustrations and allusions to Old Testament scriptures that were apocalyptic. And this is why he wrote in this manner. And as to the dating of the book, we can say with absolute assurance that it was written in the first century A.D., and we can even narrow that down even more. And we know that it was written after A.D. 50, before A.D. 100. And we know this because of historical events that happened around it and extra-biblical church writings that quote this book. To be able to date a, a book that's 2,000 years old within 50 years is actually really good. But it's not close enough for those who desire to prove their understanding of this book. Historians in our era say that this book has to be written after A.D. 97. And they use the writings from two church fathers, one 100 years after John, and another, I'm sorry, another, a man who wrote it 100 years after John, named Irenaeus, and then a second one, Eusebius, from the 4th century, quoted Irenaeus. And the writings of these men are... The problem with that is that they were widely known all along. It's not like we just found their writings. But up until 75 years ago, the majority of biblical scholars held to an earlier dating of this book. Irenaeus, he wrote a book called Against Heresies. And this book proves that the church knew that the canon of scripture, what the canon of scripture was very early on, because he quotes from every book of the New Testament, save John 3. And that's all fine and good. But within that book, there is one line that is used by modern scholars to prove with 100% assurance the dating of this book. Within that book, again, a book that was writing against heresies, he was defending the lack of the name of the man of lawlessness from Revelation not being spoken. He wrote this concerning the Antichrist in Revelation. He wrote, Had there been any need for his name to be openly announced at the present time, it would have been stated by the one who saw the actual Revelation. For it was seen not a long time back, but almost in my own lifetime, at the end of Domitian's reign. And we know Domitian was the ruler of Rome from A.D. 81 to A.D. 96. So based from that sentence, the dating of the book of Revelation has been set to A.D. 97. You may be thinking, well, that sounds like compelling evidence, knowing that it was written sometime between A.D. 81 and A.D. 96. Especially since a few hundred years later, Another church father quotes that very text and does so, meaning that John was expelled under the reign of Domitian. But there's a problem about being dogmatic about this. Because Eusebius, that church father from the 4th century who said that, it was, that what Irenaeus meant when he, in that quote about John, him being exiled by Domitian, is this. 
Eusebius didn't believe that John actually wrote the book of, of Revelation. He was one of those early church fathers that didn't hold that John actually wrote it. But he did know that John lived in the same area as Irenaeus, Asia Minor. Within a few years of Irenaeus being alive, John is said to have died around AD 98. Irenaeus was born about 130 and lived to be, um, until about year 202. And he did believe the Domitian exiled, or exiled Christians during his reign of terror on the church. And he used this quote as evidence for that fact. But Arrhenius, however, he did believe that the Apostle John did, in fact, write the book of Revelation. And that he had been exiled to Patmos, as the book says that he was. He was fighting for biblical fidelity. That those that were claiming that the book of Revelation was not Scripture because the Antichrist wasn't named were nothing but heretics. And before writing that one sentence that is used to prove that John was exiled by Domitian, just a few sentences prior to that, he said this, that the number 666 is found in all of the most approved and ancient copies of Revelation. That's how he described the book of Revelation. Domitian died in 1896. Legend has it that John died a few years later. And we know that Irenaeus was born around 130, died in 202. And since he lived and served in the same area that John lived and died in, in Ephesus, if John was exiled to Patmos in 1896 or 7, which is when this book was supposed to be written, then why would Irenaeus, less than 40 years later, call the copies ancient? Why would he make reference to ancient copies of the book of Revelation? Not only were there copies already around, but they were considered ancient. See, the point in all of this is this. The author of this book does not date this book. We can date it within proximity. But when you begin to become dogmatic about external things concerning the Bible, just to prove your version of the theology of the Bible, that should be a wake-up call that something other than the Lord has captivated your imagination. I've spent a considerable amount of time in the effort to show how man-made traditions can enter into our thinking concerning God, especially when our minds are not captivated by Him. And we must, we must approach this letter, this book in reverence, in awe. And we must do it for one reason alone. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not a revelation of the game plan for the destruction of those sinners out there. It's not a revelation of the escape plan to those who claim to be of Christ, but are looking for a way out of this life other than through suffering, through humiliation, through torture or death. There's a real danger with this type of theology. This is the same theology that was first propagated by Finney. The theology that starts with people coming to Christ as fire insurance. Hell sounds bad. I don't want to go to hell. So I'm going to ask that Jesus guy into my heart. And if you did this, if you were merely hedging your bets when you asked this Jesus guy into your heart, not because you were made aware of your sin against God, if that did not terrify your soul and cause you concern, if it wasn't your willful rebellion against the holy God that caused you to flee to the salvation found only in Christ, you may be a false convert. One who finds comfort in escapism. The escapism found in the left-behind understanding of this book. The one that says, God takes his children out of the world before the tribulation begins. Even though he has never done that before. He didn't do that with the children during the flood. He didn't do that with the children during the judgment on Egypt. Because, but because we have an aversion to the most minor of inconveniences, 
We now think that God is going to prevent us from suffering. That theology, the left behind, the book of Revelation is easy an easy book to understand theology. It's a house of cards that completely tumbles apart if this book is not written by John under the reign of Domitian. If verse 19 is not the divine outline. Saints, it's our job, our duty, it's our honor to seek Jesus in this book. To seek Him. Know that He is Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. To Him who loves us and has released us from our sins by His blood. Verse 5. He is the one that we must be captivated by. He is the one that the Father has already elevated three times within this first chapter. He is the one that John will fall at the feet of in wonder and awe. We must force ourselves to grab all of our preconceived ideas, all of those Tim LaHaye facts, and leave them behind as we study through this book. We must have a high view of Christ if we're ever to understand this book. Listen to another preacher who rightly understood that this was a revelation of Jesus Christ and not an end times playbook. Listen just to the opening segment of the sermon preached by C.H. Spurgeon on this section of Scripture. He said, The low thoughts of the Lord Jesus Christ are exceedingly mischievous to believers. If you sink your estimate of him, you shift everything else in the same proportion. He who thinks lightly of the Savior thinks so much the less of the evil of sin. And consequently, he becomes callous as to the past, careless as to the present, and venturesome as to the future. He thinks little of the punishment due to sin because he has small notions of the atonement made for sin. Christian activity for right is also abated, as well as holy horror of wrong. He who thinks lightly of the Lord Jesus renders to him but small service. He does not estimate the Redeemer's love at a rate high enough to stir his soul to ardor. If he doesn't count the blood wherewith he was redeemed as an unholy thing, yet he thinks it's a small matter, not at all sufficient to claim from him lifelong service. Gratitude is weak when favors are undervalued. He serves little who loves little, and he loves little who has no sense of having been greatly beloved. Listen to our brother John. Listen to the thing that he placed the importance on. Remember, he's writing this letter after the fact, not play by play. He's not taking dictation from the Lord. God gave him this revelation, told him to write it down. Think about that. Think about everything that is contained in this book of Revelation. Not just lions and tigers and bears. Think about the events recorded in this book. Those things that even today, we now, we still can't fathom. And yet John doesn't begin with them. He doesn't lead with, man, did I see some whack things. He leads with this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his slaves the things which must soon happen. And he indicated this by sending it through his angel to his slave John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the witness of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw, verses 1 through 2. And then here in verse 9, I, John, your brother, fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and the perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the witness of Jesus. It's Christ. It was he who captivated John. 
This is the same truth that we are told concerning what captivates our mind. It's going to be very easy for you to see what it is. A truth told to us in Matthew 6.21, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Theology can't be your treasure. Eschatology cannot be your treasure. A right understanding of the doctrines of God, they cannot be your treasure. Your treasure has to be that which John treasured. Christ. Him alone. And in verse 9, John tells his readers that first century ones and then all believers since then, who he is, John. And he doesn't call himself the disciple that Jesus loved or the apostle John. Here he calls himself our brother. He did this because he desired these saints to understand that all that he had been through, all that they were going through, and even all that they would be going through, that this was common, not uncommon. This is how God is glorified through his children. By them picking up their cross and following Christ in willful submission. This is not just common in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. It's also the same in the Old. God had Moses write the Pentateuch in the wilderness after the events of the Exodus, during the trials and tribulation of the 40 years of wandering. David wrote many of his psalms while being pursued by Saul. How many others were being penned while being pursued by his son or during the judgment for his sin with Bathsheba? Isaiah lived in difficult days died a martyr's death. Ezekiel wrote from exile. Jeremiah's life was one of trial and persecution. And then moving into the new covenant era, Stephen, Stephen gave his best sermon. His best sermon was preached from the steps of his execution platform. Many of the letters of Paul were written from a jail cell. And all of this was the will of God for these men. This was him working all things together for their good. And this is why this final written revelation was given to John while he was suffering for Christ and the gospel. John had a message for his brothers from his loving father. He, this man who knew that Jesus loved him, a man who understood the value of being in Christ and being in his kingdom. He had a been given a message to his brothers. But before he gives it to them, he wants to ensure that they have course-corrected their minds and their hearts back to true north. He wants to make sure that their hearts are captivated by the right thing, by Christ. And in verse 9, John uses three adjectives to describe our brotherhood, our sonship. He says there that he's a fellow partaker in the tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance which are in Jesus. Tribulation, kingdom, perseverance. The original Greek there, there's only one article for those three words, meaning that they are to be seen connected together, interlinked, can't be pulled apart. And back in verses 5 and 6, in describing Jesus, there John said of him, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us by our, uh, from our sins by his blood, he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the might forever and ever. Amen. And he, he continues that kingdom idea here in verse 9. Again, this is important to keep in mind because if you're one of those people that hold that God is going to rapture the church out of the world before the tribulation. You see, when we see these three linked together, we can finally begin to son understand something about our sonship in Christ. Again, remember that the first century church did not see themselves as anything other than the true Israel. They considered themselves, even if they were Jews or Gentiles, they considered themselves to be the true Jews, not a sect of Judaism, not a new religion. And they preached Christ and him crucified to the Jews. 
who continued in their version of the law-keeping as they daily went to the temple and offered animal sacrifice for their sins, all the while rejecting the true blood that was shed by the Lamb of God. Kingdom rule for them, for ethnic Jews, was never linked with tribulation or perseverance. Their religion was the same as the left-behind guys, promoting an escapism, telling their people, when the Messiah comes, you're going to be ruled, you're going to rule with him in splendor and majesty that the seizures of Rome cannot match. But this is not the kingdom of God. If you want a really good picture of what the kingdom of God is, take a look at the early church. And a great representative of that can be found in Acts chapter 14, verses 18 through 23. This is the account of Paul and Barnabas in Lystra when they had healed the lame man. And the pagans then started worshiping them. It says, in saying these things with difficulty, they, re they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And after winning over the crowds and stoning Paul, they dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he rose up and entered the city. And the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. And after they had proclaimed the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraged them to continue in the faith and saying, through many afflictions we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them in the Lord in whom they had believed. This is the kingdom of God. The one that John was a fellow partaker of. A kingdom that is ruled by Christ. A kingdom that we participate in the rule of through him. And a kingdom that we reign alongside of him in through tribulation and perseverance. This is the meaning when John says that he's a fellow partaker in the kingdom through tribulation and perseverance. We, we like the idea of kingdom rule. We like the idea in our minds what that means, kingdom rule. In our minds, that means that we're sitting on thrones, having servants bring us food, wiping our mouths for us, refilling our drinks every time we take a, drip, a sip. For us, kingdom rule means that we get to play as we desire, having a driver for our golf cart, a caddy to carry our clubs. It's the endless summer, the best holiday ever. For us, that's kingdom rule. For us, this is the kingdom that we think is ours in Christ. At least the one that we desire. Is Jesus king? Does he have dominion over a kingdom? Well, he answered yes to both of those questions. In John 18, 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. His kingdom is not from here, but here is still part of his kingdom. But when does his kingdom come? Some say that his kingdom doesn't come until he returns and make all things new. The only problem with that is that's not how he spoke about the kingdom. When Jesus gave that answer concerning his kingdom not being in this world, his answer was not that his servants will fight for me when that kingdom comes. His answer was that since his kingdom is not of this world, his servants would not be preventing him from being handed over. No, his kingdom is now. He rules here. Now, just as he does everywhere, he has always ruled over his kingdom. Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Again, Psalm 145, verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures from generation to generation. But this is not what we've been taught. This is not how we've been taught to understand our walk with the Lord. Not now. 
We look forward to his kingdom. The kingdom that is spoken of at the end of this book, Revelation 22, 5, where it says, there will no longer be any night and there will not have any need of the light of the lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. We think this earth, this life, this can't be his kingdom. He can't be reigning now over this kingdom. There's too much evil. There's too much pain. There's too much suffering. But this is not how Christ spoke of his kingdom. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So much of the issue that we have in understanding the kingdom of God is that we have had our minds captivated by the wrong thing. God's kingdom is not a time. It's not even a place. His kingdom is a person. This is why Jesus said in Luke 17, 21, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he's referring to himself there. This is why he said of the mission, his mission, that he must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, Luke 4.43. What's the gospel? It's the good news of not an end of the age or signs and wonders or powers and privilege. The good news, the gospel, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. In chapter 8, verse, uh, verse 1, I'm sorry, verse 8 of Luke 1 describes the ministry of Jesus as proclaiming, bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. In chapter 11 of Luke, when the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of being of the devil, his response there was this, if, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, has come upon you. Chapter 11, verse 20. And in chapter 10 of Luke, when Jesus sends out the 72 to preach the gospel, after giving them their instructions, he says that they are to tell all that the kingdom of God has come near to you, verse 9. And then, listen to Luke in chapter 1 of Acts. There he begins where Jesus left off after his resurrection. He begins by writing this. The first account, O Theopolis, I composed about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. And, after he, and after, <clears throat> after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles, which he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after many sufferings, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over forty days and speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? In verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. His answer there was not, I don't know. His answer is told to us in verse 7, is that they need not allow their minds to be captivated by things that they should not be, times and seasons. He tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. He tells them, you will be as John is, says that he is now, a fellow partaker of the kingdom, because what they had been made, they had been made an heir to the kingdom through the Holy Spirit, and were participants in it through the gospel, through tribulation and perseverance in the kingdom. His kingdom is important. Our reigning with him in his kingdom means nothing more or less than being in him, being with him. 
And again, this is why Paul, when he heard that the Spirit was redeeming people in Ephesus, he wrote to them and told them that he was praying for them. Again, what was he praying for them? Was he praying miracles, signs, wonders, that they were able to drink poison, not die, that they would be able to preach from vats of oil, that their minds would be captivated by amazing things? He prayed that their minds would be captivated, yes. But he prayed this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of him, so that you, the eyes of your hearts, having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of the might of his strength to which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. See, Paul knew, as John did, that the value of being in the kingdom wasn't the kingdom, a place, or a time. It was Christ, not the add-ons that come with it. And the point that John is passing on to his brothers here is this. Christ ruled this kingdom. The one that John was a partaker of. The one that Jesus was a partaker of as he walked this earth. And we are given the privilege of partaking of this kingdom in the same manner that Jesus did. Which is why we're told in Philippians 2. Have this way of thinking in yourselves which also was in Christ Jesus. Who although existing in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself. Taking the form of a slave being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a Christ. And we share in his rule, in his kingdom, through tribulation, just as he did, through willful obedience to the king, just as he did, through persevering, in tribulation and death, just as he did. This verse, verse 9, is a major theme that will be developed throughout the book of Revelation. It's a, rel it's a reality that the early church lived out. Believers conquering in the face of trials by not compromising, by willingly being partakers of the kingdom of Christ through tribulation and perseverance. Tribulation was the present reality for John as he wrote this letter, and it would become a part of an imminent reality of the churches that he was writing to. And we will see when we get into the letter of the churches that the, there's that, cat, that command to the churches is always this, repent and obey. Reign in the kingdom with Christ through persevering and tribulation. God will commend his churches four times for faithfully enduring tribulation. And later in this letter, the Lord will commend them to persevere in language that's hard to hear. Listen to verses 9 and 10 of chapter 13. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone killed to, the, to be killed with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. And this is the same type of call that is given a chapter later in chapter 14, verses 12 and 13. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commands of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. John is preparing us in verse 9. Getting our minds and our hearts focused 
on what he's about to tell us, why this should be important to us. He understood the importance of being part of that kingdom because he was as we are. He, he's the same as the, sins, the saints that he was writing to, an heir of the kingdom, a son of the king, a slave of Christ, who has a message for us. God, through the apostle John, was making sure we didn't allow our minds to become captivated by anything less than what should captivate our minds. Christ. The risen, reigning king who is our kingdom. Saints, what has captivated your mind? Is it Christ? Is he the single most important thing in your life? Is he the reason that you open your Bible on a daily basis? Is he truly only, the only hope you have in life and death? Saints, seek the Lord. Dig deep into the word. Marvel at the one who is spoken of with such radiant glory by our brother John. Life can be hard. Life will get hard. But John knew this reality. And yet, at the same time, he knew that there is no better, no safer, no more fulfilling place to be than in the kingdom through tribulation and perseverance. And there's one reason that this is so. Because this is where Jesus is at. And for that reason, this is where John desired to be. May God grant us the wisdom and the grace to live as our brother John did. Let's pray.